As, as the musicians were, were singing Psalm 42, and as we've been moving through the Psalms, I cannot help but to feel that the Psalms are like a pressure release valve. One of the lyrics that they sang in Psalm 42 is, why is it you have forgotten me? And um, like you might think, can we say that? Like, can we say that to God? Like, the Psalms give us permission to exhale. And the Psalms tell us it's okay to feel those things at times. And it's okay to talk to God like that. Uh, it gives us permission to be human. And that's why the Psalms are so valuable. This morning, we're uh, coming from Psalm 8. So let's read it. The word of God. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your word. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to fill this place in our hearts, that we might be transformed through the hearing of the word. Convict us and convince us of its truth that we may leave this place differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, Stare at that screen long enough and you can see running through the circle with the dot in the middle, a beam of light. Can you see that? Yeah. The lighting in here does not make it great, but this is a picture taken by Voyager 1 on February 14th, 1990. As the spacecraft left our planetary neighborhood for the fringes of the solar system, Engineers turned it around one last time to take a picture at planet Earth from about six billion miles away. And it's approximately 32 degrees above the ecliptic plane when it captured this portrait of our world from outer space. And it's caught in the center of scattered light rays, a result of taking um, the picture so close to the sun. The earth appears as a tiny point of light, a crescent only 0.12 pixel in size. Commenting on this, the late astronomer Carl Sagan, the original host of the show Cosmos, writes, look again at that dot, that's here. 
That's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and every sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic area. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our self-imagined importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this pale point of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and, uh, and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known." End quote. Carl Sagan, 1994. We can put the lights back up. Carl Sagan was a profound thinker and writer. He was an astronomist, and as you can guess, he was an atheist. And he looked on man's self-importance, self-perceived importance in the world, like a human being would look on the work of an ant colony and determine that because we're small, we're insignificant. And yet, for an atheist, it's a very responsible statement. On some level, he's to be congratulated for the observation that man thinks too much of himself. Our smallness and residence in this remote corner of the universe on a speck of dust like cosmic earth, a speck of cosmic du dust like earth, should humble us. We should take ourselves less seriously. And we should recognize that this is all we've got and make the best of it by treating each other with kindness and dignity and love and respect. 
Now, Sagan stands in a long line of naturalists who critique what they call our geocentrist conceit, the idea that mankind inhabits some privileged place in the universe. From the naturalist's perspective, man is nothing more than an accidental collocation of molecules, a biological anomaly, a minor player on an infinite cosmic stage. What Sagan and the naturalists get right is that man is small, dwarfed by the enveloping universe around him. What they get wrong is that our importance is self-imagined. When David wrote Psalm 8, he looked up at the skies and considered the smallness of humanity and then marveled at God's glory. Psalm 8.3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. What Psalm 8 wants us to see is that though we may not be the geographical center of the universe, we occupy the center of God's attention. The naturalists are not completely wrong. Our solar system is not Earth-centric, but heliocentric. And our solar system is in some kind of remote region of the, the galaxy, which is a remote region of the universe. But in God's mind, we occupy the center of his attention and we fill God's mind up. That's what it means to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? God's mind is full of man. He's thinking about us. He cares about us. And this is a good corrective, not just for the naturalists, but for us as Christians, especially as Reformed Christians, because we've thought about the doctrine of sin and the sinfulness of human beings probably more than any other tradition. We care a lot about sin because we rightly understand that unless you have the human dilemma of sinfulness, well, Jesus isn't much of an answer if there isn't the problem of sin. And so we've rightly recognized how sinful we are and how sin affects every aspect of our being. But the problem is we can develop sort of like a worm theology. At least that's what I call it. It's kind of a worm theology. In fact, we talk so much about sin that we contend, if we're not careful, to completely reduce human beings to nothing but sinners. Where, that, where the only thing that's true of human beings is that we're sinners and sinful. And I want to say that uh, that's not right. Psalm 8 retrieves a vision of what it means to be human in the mind of God that restores dignity to all human beings, sinner and saint alike. I'm not flattening out the distinction of what it means to be a child of God and to be saved and redeemed but what I am saying is the biblical vision, at least right out of the gate, is that human beings are invested with an incredible amount of value and dignity and worth in the sight of God. And if that's true about what God feels towards people, 
Well, what does it say about us and the way we feel towards other people? Psalm 8 and 5, he says, you've made them a little lower than the heavenly beings. You may recall, or in, you may have been exposed to another version that says, you made him a little lower than the angels. That's actually a New Testament verse we'll get to in a minute in Hebrews 2. That translation is from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and this psalm here is the Hebrew Bible. But you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, David writes, and crowned him with glory and honor, and you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And this is a, this is a, a data point for David that helps him to understand why human beings are not just another animal, right? In, in, in the biological sense, we're animals, but from God's perspective, we've been invested with something greater. The bear and the elephant and the lion, we tame, not because we're strong, but because God has given us dominion to put all things under our feet. You know, physically, humans are little and weak. We are little in the grand scope of things, especially even in the animal kingdom. The great masters of the jungle are massive. The grizzly bear, the lion, the tiger, the elephant, the hippo, the blue whale. I mean, we dwarf. We're dwarfed in comparison to these massive beasts, but yet we're able to have dominion over them. We, are, we can tame animals. I, I always thought it was bizarre, like, you know, like Ringling Brothers, there's a grizzly bear on a unicycle juggling or something. Like, that's crazy that we can do that. I don't know that that's ethical, but I'm, that's another question. I'm, but, you know, we can do those things. We, we train mice and bears, and biologists say, they push against us and say, you know, we share 97% of our DNA with gorillas. You're not that special. And my question is, what's in the other 3%? That makes us build rockets to the moon. That's the question. And I think that's the question that the psalmist is getting at. That there's something in that other 3% of DNA that makes us like God. And that is exactly what the psalmist is experiencing. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth as you reside above the heavens, so man reigns and rules over the earth. And for David, this is remarkable that man is like God. And this is not blasphemous. This is image of God theology. This is good theology here, that we're like God over the creation. We're not God, but we're like God because we've been given the image of God. And so we rule on God's behalf. We're the stewards of God's world. And we can do things that no animal can do. And we're not denying that certain animals are smart. Elephants have memories and, you know, porpoises and blue whales can communicate with each other. We're not denying any of those things. As if all animals are dumb, what we're saying is, is that man is in a class and a league by himself because in him is the image of his and her creator. The mighty seas we navigate on little ships, we build skyscrapers, into the clouds, bridges that span oceans, bullet trains under the ground. 
But again, we ourselves are little and weak. But that is exactly what seems to glorify God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says in 4 and 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The fragile pottery, so to speak, of our human lives display weakness that reveal the power of God. It would be like a clay pot with dirt on the outside, nothing fancy, and inside was like a 100-carat diamond, if there is such a thing. I don't know, maybe. Or a 200-carat diamond. The pot itself is only special because of what it's carrying. And this is how God makes his name great, by using weak people to do his great work. It's stunning, really, when you think about it, that God chose what is weak and small in the world so that nothing can boast in his presence. I've already mentioned the titans of creation, like the blue whale and the Asian elephant, the polar bear, powerful, strong, and massive, but God chose instead man. Maybe it's because of all the creatures, we're the only ones who can think and ask this very question asked here in the psalm, what is man? The elephant or the blue whale ostensibly does not think, what is the whale? What is elephant? But man asks these questions. Men and women, human beings, ask these questions. We have a self-consciousness that no other living organism has. We're aware of ourselves, and we're aware of God. And so we ask, what is man that you're mindful of him? We're small, we're weak, we're frail. I mean, it doesn't take much to die. If you fall off a, a two-story building the wrong way, you're done. We're not indestructible. It is easy for us to be hurt and maimed and injured, and yet... God has invested us with a portion, a very significant portion of his very being and essence. And this is reason to worship. I mean, this, like, this is the trajectory of this psalm. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. You rule over the heavens. Your glory you've made manifest. And for some reason, you've seen fit to allow us to sort of do the same thing over the earth. We're made in God's image. We're like little replicas in some way of God. As he rules above the heavens, we rule over the earth. And God is gratified by this. Rolf Jacobson says in his, psalm, in his Psalms commentary, the bank vault of human worth, according to this psalm, is not located in the fact that we exist, but rather the twin sources of the God who created us and the creation of which God has directed us to exercise our responsibility. Which means God is immensely pleased when we are carrying out our vocation as human beings to wisely steward the creation. That in some way the value of what it means to be human is not just that we have a pulse and a heartbeat, but that God has made us the stewards over all that he's created in this world. Now, we're not made to be stewards over the moon and Mars and those other places, at least for the present, but it's Earth 
Earth is the place that sustains life in the solar system. There is a remarkable documentary that came out about 15 years ago called The Privileged Planet. If you get a chance, I think you can look it up and watch it for free on YouTube. And it is a retrieval of the idea that man does hold a privileged place in the universe. Our actual location in our solar system or galaxy is, is irrelevant. But the fact that life, that life is supported on this planet speaks to the importance and privilege that man has. Now the problem is, and there is a problem, all is not peachy and all is not roses. The problem is the human race isn't doing a very good job of this mandate God has given us to reflect his glory over the earth. We pollute and destroy the earth. We commit acts of injustice against one another. And instead of having dominion the way God wants us to have dominion, we dominate. That's what we do to one another. Instead of respecting each other as image bearers made in the image of God and having dominion over the creation, we try to dominate each other and we destroy the creation. And the remedy is in Hebrews 2, a passage that Jesus has come and eventually the world will be under his perfect dominion and rule because he's the perfect image bearer of God. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says about it. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Interesting, the writer of Hebrews can't remember where this verse is. What is man that you are mindful of him? He doesn't know verse and chapter, but he remembers the, the passage. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet, under his feet. And he goes on to say, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, though at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's you and me, by faith. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Last verse, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The glory that's in human beings that bear the image of God is marred because of sin, but it is not beyond retrieval. And the one who retrieves that is Jesus. What humanity on earth was meant to be, the mandate we were meant to carry out, will and is being recovered and restored in the person and work of Jesus, the perfect image bearer the one that perfectly models the dominion over the creation that man was supposed to have. It's Jesus. He's the one that the world will one day completely and totally come under his rule. It will happen. 
The earth, again, will be wisely and perfectly stewarded the way God meant for human beings to do it, and it'll happen because of Jesus. Because he came and because he's coming again. Eventually, the world will be under his feet, and everything will be made right. How can we embody, though, in the meantime, the grace and love that God shows weak creatures like us? Right? How can we, in the meantime, as we look to to what Jesus is doing and will one day completely accomplish, how can we embody that same same sort of love towards the weak uh, by loving and caring for the weak and powerless? You know, what it means to be a Christian is not just about the things you believe. It's important that we believe the right things. We care a lot about theology in the Bible. Good, 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 we should. But it's not just about what's in here, it's about the things we do with one another. It's about how we treat other people. It's about the love we show for people who are completely weak, people who are completely powerless. Because when we do that, we're rejecting the ethics of sort of power and domination, which is God's plan for humanity, which has been perverted by sin. Wise stewardship and dominion perverted into power and domination. We embody that grace and love that Jesus showed, that God showed through Jesus to us weak and frail sinners when we love those who are weaker than us, when we don't despise people who don't have the power we have, I just had a conversation the other day with somebody about, in the Western world, the sort of ethic of scripture is like flipped on its head. Where the Bible wants to retrieve the power of God in human weakness, we sort of look down the end of our noses on human weakness. We just can't help it. As a culture, we sort of worship power. We worship success, we worship those things, and it causes us, when we look at those who are powerless and weak, to think, What's wrong with them? What are they doing wrong? Right, and like you think about Jesus and the disciples, you think they had none of those trappings of the modern world. They didn't have education. They didn't have status, property. I'm not, I'm not saying those things are evil. What I'm saying is, is that the ethic of Scripture, which is to celebrate the power of God in human weakness, has sort of like disintegrated on some level. We know it with our heads. No, no, no. In our weakness, God's strength is made perfect, but in our behavior and in our daily dealings with one another, we embody sort of that ethic of power. And so Psalm 8 is a good corrective. Hebrews 2 is a good corrective. It reminds us that actually, no, you don't have any power, and the power you think you have can be stripped right from under you any moment. The dominion and rule we've been given is stewardship, on loan from God, as long as we acknowledge that he's the one who truly controls all things and is in power. And he's reminded us that that rule and dominion from heaven will be made manifest through his son once and for all in a new heaven and a new earth. Because this is what Jesus did when he became weak and died for us, we have life. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you now that you remind us that we are just a speck of dust. We live on a moat of dust, enveloped by the vast cosmic dark of space. But you've chosen to put your favor upon us. We bear your image imperfectly. But we look to the one who is the perfect image bearer, Jesus, who will bring us into a new heaven and a new earth and restore the dominion and the glory that you originally purposed for mankind. It's all because of your son, Jesus. We acknowledge that. We confess that. And we proclaim it, O God, to your glory. Amen.